thought I'd just get something out there right away. Um, because I think that the new people are here because I'm assuming you're here because you're interested in practice and you're interested in uh, what practice uh, seems to offer, or at least is advertised as offering. And usually the way we think about that is that you're going to get something. We're going to get something. We're going to get happiness, or we'll get peace, or we'll get freedom from suffering, or we'll something. We'll get something. (laughs) I hope. We'll get better. That's usually, usually that's what we think when we come someplace. You know, we think we're going to get something. Pay, we get. Pay my money, I want something. And most of our life, for most people, is lived on this scale of more or less wanting. Wanting things to be different than they are. Wanting success, wanting, wanting a relationship, wanting to be married, getting kids. Everything is about wanting. But spiritual practice is actually uh, the opposite. So, if you want to leave now, (laughs) too late for you, John. It's really the opposite. It's about uh, stripping away. It's about searching for what you're not and letting go of that. So searching for what you're attached to. You're searching for what creates a sense of self, a false sense of me and separation. And you want to see that clearly and give that up. So it's not a getting. It's a stripping away, it's a letting go, it's a more and more acquiring less and less. And, and there's good reason why it is that way. Because the little self that we think we are is very good at convincing us that we keep needing something in order to be happy, in order to get better, in order to find the meaning of life. And so spiritual practice wants to undermine that very quality of mind that is the cause of suffering. So instead of accumulating The practice is about letting go and even further than that, it turns out that as you unpack, unpack, as you see clearly and let go, let go, let go, more and more, what is it the essence of this stripping away is who you 
truly are, who we truly are. And, you know, usually, mostly, we don't believe that. We don't believe that if we take away all of the things that we've built up as becoming adults, as we've built up from our conditioning, these are the things that we think are going to get us whatever it is that we think we want. So we kind of, it's a good to hit a wall to finally know that I've done my list. I've gotten my job. I have my relationship. I have my, you know, enough money, or I have my identity as a mother, or identity as a school teacher, or identity as a whatever it is. It's good to recognize that all of that accumulating, all of that building, all of that creating a me has failed. We're actually, underneath it all, at the end of the day, sort of happy, sometimes. But not really deeply satisfied. Not being able to settle in your own life and have that be enough. That's a good thing. Because as human beings, you know, sweet, dear human beings that we are, we need to be smashed up against the wall (laughs) before we actually, you know, do something. (laughs) Maybe that's not true for everybody, but that was certainly true for me. So we are comfortable with these distractions that that we uh, major in. You know, some people major in alcohol as a distraction. Some people major in Netflix as a distraction. You know, technology is a very good distraction. Some people major in lots of relationships as a distraction. Some people major in work. Busy, 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 as a distraction. We're good at distracting ourselves. It's hard for us to be alone and okay. Doing nothing. So our way is about clarifying these distractions, noticing these distractions. And we do that in three ways. We have three basic kind of techniques. And the main technique, of course, is sitting meditation, convincing the mind to be present, and then later just sitting. We call that shikantaza or zazen. Meditation is our main, main suggestion. And our second suggestion is continuity 
of mindfulness or continuity of presence, continuity of mindfulness. Did I say that already? (laughs) These are two techniques that need to be clarified and developed and continued. And the third one is we call is an acronym called RAIN. Recognize what's there. Allow, accept, name even. Investigate sensations in the body. Investigate what happened from that event. And then N, not necessary to identify that as a me, that event. The, this rain business is in a book called Wide Awake by Diana Winston, and it's also in a book I just read called True Refuge by Tara Brock. And if you look it up on the web, it's also on the web. It's now becoming a very common uh, teaching. R-A-I-N, rain. So in the beginning, these techniques need to be cultivated and stabilized. And then when they are, when you really can deal with your own conditioning and not get caught by it, when your mind is strong enough and present enough, then we continue sitting, of course, and add inquiry. into the dharmas, into the teachings. What are the skandhas? What does impermanence mean? What is dependent co-arising? What do I mean by consciousness or awareness? Investigate. Looking for what we are not and clarifying what we are. Awakeness is not a mystery. Even now in this room, if you are quiet, and pay attention, the thing that is most apparent is not the content of your mind. That is coming and going. It's not bodily sensations. Those are coming and going. It's not your emotions. They're coming and going. What is there now before thought? 
What is there but a sense of beingness and aliveness, a knowing quality? That is what we are already. It's not magic. It is actually magic. So as I used to say all the time and constantly, not necessary to pay attention to the content of mind. The content of mind is not what we are. Everything that you can see that is changing is not what we are. We are prior to that change. I heard a really good analogy the other day. It's like, it's like a screen, and things are like projected on the screen, and that it's all changing and so on. But the screen is never changing. It's the background unchanging, silent, still, knowing quality of mind. That is what we are looking for when we come to spiritual practice. Because under all of the distraction, under all of the content of mind, under all of the identities that we create and recreate, is our true nature. In Zen, We point all the time to that. They're pointers. The koans are pointers. Like, I don't know if you've ever heard this koan, who, what is your face before your parents were born? Right? That's a pointer. What's there before your mind engages? Right? Questions like, what am I? Am I awake? What is consciousness? These are pointers pointing you back to your original nature. And it's there that we find meaning in life. We don't have to look outside. We look inside. So um, when we chant the Heart Sutra, this is a little thing that we chant all the time. It says, no eyes, no ears, no nose, no body, no mind, no color, sound, no smell, no taste, no touch, no ta-da-da-da-da-da-da. This is Zen stripping away, stripping away, pointing to emptiness. Not this, not this. Not this, not that. I'm not this, I'm not that. Well, if I'm not that, what am I?
So in Zen, first there is this stripping away. Until you know yourself as nothing, which is a little bit scary sometimes. The first step is to know yourself as nothing at all. And then as everything. So there are kind of two parts, nothing, then everything. But the first part is this stripping away, stripping away. And it takes a lot of courage. I had another great kind of um, image. It's like when, um, it's like clay, when, you know, when you have a clay bowl and a clay dish and a clay platter and a clay, all these things are different. We think they're all different, clay and platter, and they're all different, but they're all clay. And this is the truth of us. In this room, we're all different, totally different. And great that we're different. How rich is that? It's one of the great things about New York. And yet, we are the same, made of the same fundamental essence. So, this awakening first that happens, which is the basically um, awareness knowing itself as itself, which is this empty, awake, knowing, vast thing, nothing, turns to realize itself as essentially everything in this essential commonality. And when that happens, love, that is love. When you see yourself as everything, is love. And this is what happens in our path. We develop as this love blossoms we develop what we call a mind of a bodhisattva, which is a person who is devoted to the awakening of every single being from this recognition of no difference. And this is the supreme, this is why the Lotus Sutra, which is why I eventually wanted to get to, the Lotus Sutra is so beloved because the Lotus Sutra is the first great text of devotion to this path of a bodhisattva. And strangely, you know, in the book, it doesn't really teach anything. What it does is through images and through parables. Parables? No. Parables? Parables? Is that right? Yeah. Thank you. Through parables and through uh, this cosmic um, bursting through our relative idea of time and space, offers this way of life, this where you find meaning in life. 
devoting yourself to, the, to other people, basically, to the awakening of everything. And some people tell me, this is not exactly my experience, but some people tell me that this, this, this nature of awakening is, wants this to happen. I don't know how that would work, but <laughs> that this, this in, inherent um, knowing quality of what we are wants to awaken, and it's, wants itself to awaken everywhere. And this is the message of the Lotus Sutra. It makes prediction that every single person, and that includes every single person in this room, is going to be a Buddha someday. What a wonderful teaching. What a wonderful place to, what a wonderful like heart offering. Every single person you meet you respect, you care for, they are going to be a Buddha someday. They are walking their path toward being a Bodhisattva and then then from being a Bodhisattva to being a Buddha. Guaranteed, every single person. This This is a very different kind of teaching than some that we hear, right? So, talking about the Lotus Sutra, um, in the beginning, as often is the case, when the next kind of wave of Buddhism comes about, it's often in, in reaction to something that has gone before, that it's a little bit turned off the path a little slightly. So, in the beginning, in early Buddhism, there were these two ways of practicing, and one person who practiced one way was called uh, a Prajeka Buddha. Prajeka Buddha is a Buddha who wants to wake up alone just for their own awakening and pleasure. And the other kind of style was called a Shravaka. And the Shravaka is a hearer of the teaching. when both these kinds of trends were happening, they were, they're emphasizing um, the teaching of impermanence and um, Four Noble Truths and so on, and waking up into this quality that I was talking about before, this emptiness quality, this nothing, 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 nothing. But what happened for them was very interesting. Once they got to nothing, 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 became a very dry, very, they couldn't find meaning in life. They became very nihilistic. Big mistake. This is not the Buddha's teaching. So the Mahayana, which is our way, later turned into Zen, brought about this extraordinary response to this mistake. And by saying, no, understanding of emptiness is not the end of the story. Emptiness is like going up the mountain, it's often said. But that's not the end of the story. The story is in a much more difficult path 
very nice to be up there at the top of the mountain. You know, you can look down on all the other people way down there, you know, suffering their lives. It's very nice up here, blissful, happy, sort of, you know, unconnected. Not, 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 not the teaching, no. The teaching is coming down, descending the mountain into the world, the mundane, everyday world. It often is said in Zen, um, back into the marketplace. Back into the marketplace is where we embody our understanding of emptiness, where we embody the truth of our own nature, where we are able to be with other people as a treasure. Where we can walk the path of a bodhisattva, waking up in order to be able to serve other beings wherever they are who suffer. Because suffering is unnecessary, totally unnecessary. And so this descending the mountain was this realization of the Mahayana, this offering of the Bodhisattva path. And it is given to us in the Lotus Sutra. It's a wonderful, wonderful text. Crazy, wonderful, deliriously expansive, cosmic text. (laughs) So the, the book is divided into like two parts. The first part, we see the Buddha as a regular person, born, taught, you know, dead. And the second part, the Buddha becomes this cosmic presence. And so this is a hint. When you read the Lotus Sutra, First of all, don't get caught in the words. It's a, it's a little flowery for us modern people. But enjoy the ride. It's a lovely ride. But when, if you choose to read it and want to study it, whenever they're talking, whenever the person is looking at a tree or a flower or a mountain or a something, they're talking about the relative world. But when they're looking at space, they're talking about the ultimate. So that's just good to know whether you kind of wise you get lost in it. So, um, the last time I spoke, we talked about the first two chapters of the Lotus Sutra. The second one being, first one, an introduction, and the second one being uh, skillful means. And the Lotus Sutra is the main place where this technique, I don't know if you call it a technique, it's more, it's more, a, a, a more of a heart response of a person who has some clarity about their own uh, free from their own conditioning. It's more a heart response. So skill and means is presented. This is the main place that it's presented in the Lotus Sutra for Mahayana Buddhists. The first place is presented in the main place that it's talked about. And a very good friend of mine, Oh, yes, Lemon, thank you. 
a very good friend of mine called her business appropriate response. She's a Buddhist. And the story about appropriate response, I think I've probably said this before, but I'll say it again. Um, A teacher is asked, what is the teaching of a lifetime? What is the practice of a lifetime? And he says, an appropriate response. The ability to to respond appropriately to someone who is in suffering, or anybody really, but the ability to respond, even with a different teaching, even with teachings that sound contradictory, because there's so many different people. And for each person, there's, it could be a different teaching. Right? So an appropriate response for that person, for that situation, is the practice of a lifetime. Skill and means, Lotus Sutra. So the next chapter, the third chapter, is a parable. It's a very famous parable called the parable of the burning house, which I'm going to read. I don't know if I should read it or tell it to you, but I'll start reading it, and then if it gets too long, I'll tell it to you. So Buddha is speaking, and Shariputra is asking the Buddha to uh, explain something to him. And this is what the Buddha says. There was a certain kingdom uh, where there was a great elder, an old and worn elder of boundless wealth, possessing many fields, houses, oops, slaves, no, no, and servants. His house is spacious and large, having only one door. This is important. Only one door. And with many people dwelling in it. As a matter of fact, 100, 200, or even 500 in number. See, the Lotus Sutra just, numbers are just thrown around. (laughs) Its halls and chambers are decayed and old, its walls crumbling, the bases of its pillars rotten, the beams and roof tree toppling and dangerous. On every side, at the same moment, fire suddenly starts. Oh, my God. The sons of the elder and daughters, say 10, 20, or even 30, are in this dwelling. The elder, on seeing this conflagration spring up on every side, is greatly startled and reflects thus. Though I am able to get safely out of this burning house, my children in the burning house are pleasurably absorbed in amusements without apprehension, knowledge, surprise, or fear. Though the fire is pressing in upon them and pain and suffering are imminent, they do not mind or fear, are totally distracted, and have no impulse to escape. Now, Do I have to say that this is us? (laughs) Do I have to say that this is a description of our situation? I don't think so. The elder ponders. I am strong in my body and arms. Shall I get them out of the house by means of a flower vessel or bench or a table? This house has only one gate, 
Moreover, it's narrow and small. My children are young, knowing nothing, and yet attached to their place of play. Perhaps they will fall into the burning fire. I must speak to them immediately about this dreadful matter. I must warn them that the house is burning. So quickly he yells. (laughs) He yells out, Come quickly, all of you. Come, come. Out of the house. Out of the house. Guess what happens? (laughs) Did you read this already? You do? Okay. They ignore him. Right? They ignore him. How many times do we ignore what's best for us? You know? How many times we know what's the right thing to do, and instead we go for something easy, right? Something that will please us in some way, right? Instead of, instead of coming to Sid Zazen, you make an appointment with somebody else and go have dinner, you know? Instead of, well, you know what I would say. <laughs> you know, instead of doing practice, we do something else. We don't notice the house is burning. You, know, you do when you get older. It's clear. Right? Not much time. But we don't notice. The house is burning. So the father, in his pity, lures and admonishes with kind words, yet the children, joyfully attached to their play, are unwilling to believe him. <laughs> they don't even believe him and have neither surprise nor fear. The elder reflects, this house is burning in a great fire, and if I and my children do not get out at once, we shall certainly be burned by it. Let me now use some skillful means and cause my children to escape this disaster. Knowing that to which each of his children is predisposed, and all of the various attractive playthings and curiosities to which their natures will joyfully respond, the father informs them, saying, and what he says is, he knows that each of his children, now all of a sudden there are three children instead of 300 children, but (laughs) Um, he says, for one child, he says, I know you like a cart drawn by a deer, and so I have a wonderful cart out here with a deer pulling it, and it's full of wonderful things and pretty things and lovely things and so on and so forth. Come out and come get this. This is for you. And then for the other child, he says, I have another cart that's pulled by a goat. I know you love carts pulled by a goat. And this goat <laughs> and this goat has wonderful decorations on it, and we've made his beard colorful and has come, come, come and get this cart pulled by a, boat, a goat. You're going to love it. And then for the third child, he says, and for you, I have this cart pulled by an ox, a strong ox, and it too is decorated and has things in the back that you're going to want. Come out and get your cart pulled by an ox. And then the children think, this is fabulously great, and they run out of the house through the one door, and they come out of the house. Now I've lost my place. (laughs) But I know what happens. I'll tell you what happens. So so what happens is they come out of the door, and they see not three carts, but only one cart. So the the father lied to the children. But they did get out of the house through this one door. 
that's the story. They got out of the house. <laughs> and there are some questions about this story, this parable of our own life. The two other cards, just so you know, the two other cards, one is for the Shravaka kind of practitioner, and the other one is for the Pacheka Buddha type practitioner. And the narrow door represents that there is only one true path. This is, this is so um, institutionally religious, I have trouble talking about it. But anyway, the one true path is the, the uh, Mahayana path, this new path about bodhisattva practice. And the, instead of having three different carts, there's only one cart. The ox cart, the biggest, strongest, most beautiful cart, which, of course, is the Mahayana vehicle. (laughs) But there are two things that are really interesting about this story. One is, is that the children have to come out alone. You know, you are totally responsible for your own awakening. You're totally responsible for your own freedom from suffering. There is only one person who can walk your particular path. Other people can help. Other people can point. Other people can hold you up. But you have to walk out alone. Oh, there are three things. And the other thing is, did the father lie? Is lying bad? And in our path, in the Mahayana path, our path is the, the underneath of all of our precepts is non-harming. So the father did not lie, technically. The father, through skillful means, drew the children out of the firing house. So in our way of thinking about it, that was not a lie. And then the last thing, which Greg brought up this morning, is that once out of the house, they have their own life. So this is our story. This is our encouragement to practice. And this is the path of Zen. It ends up being a very um, heartfelt, meaningful path. And once you begin walking on this path, it's as if it's not even your life anymore, which is a good thing. It's a very good thing to finally be able to give up the controlling, the controller person, the manipulator person, and surrender yourself to life living itself out through you. This is the path of the Bodhisattva. Total surrender to your own true nature. It's not bad. You don't get much money, but... (laughs) It's a lot of meaning. Okay. Questions? What would you like to talk about? Yes.
on to someone hearing the story uh, also heard what was left out. The binaries of power, you even noted the words slaves are in the house. So here's a patriarch, a, a wise, skillful man. And in the story, we hear about him delivering his, his three sons, but we don't hear about the servants, the slaves, and, and that binary of power structure. So how, how we understand that in the narrative, that part that, that is unspoken? That's a mistake. That's a terrible thing. It reminded me of, you know, in the, this is a horrible thing. Do you know that in the, in the, um, what was that big ship that went down? The Titanic. In the Titanic, in the movie, but I think it's true. Do you remember if you guys saw the movie? The horrible, horrible, horrible part where there are all these people in steerage. My mother, came, oops, my, my family came across in steerage, so it really struck me. Everybody below deck, that it was locked. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate your saying it because I think it's something that we, we do have to address that even though it's terrible or constructive means yep. as, as a path, there's also the inherent propaganda in them. Yeah. That is a mistake. Mistake. And, just in, and maybe at that time it, it was very helpful in, in terms of people understanding the teachings, but we know that that was coming out of a very segregated, delegated mm -hmm. power structure mm -hmm. that kept people down. Mm -hmm. People, as you said, locked under the, mm -hmm. the, in, the, in the boat. Yeah, which is happening today. In the burning house. That's right. We have lots of prisons, you know, with people who, right? Terrible. Yes, sir. I, I would put a more positive Oh, okay. Okay, I would say that they already left. Oh, golden opportunity. Great. 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 That's great. I remember that. Thank you. It's great. Thank you, three of you. This is great. I love it. You guys talk. All the wisdom is here in the in the room, you know. Yes, John. In the parable, uh, the three wagons represent uh, three different approaches. To yes. Right. Yes. What's the uh, What's the one that's you mentioned two? What's the one that's not Mahayana and is not the selfish one you mentioned? Shravaka is the hearer. Pratyeka Buddha is the individually awoke person. And the, um, I think that's the goat. And the um, ox is a Mahayana approach. 
you hear the teachings and wake up. Ashwant. I was going to speak, but I kind of want to take off on what you said. And that is, I think, that one of the reasons the parable doesn't call out to slaves because they're invisible. They're invisible. They're invisible. They're yeah. seen. They're less than. Absolutely. Invisible. Right. Um, and I think, um, in spite of all the good intentions of the Father to call, separate. That's the thing. And the same problem we have today. The reason why the world is the way it is today with so much unnecessary suffering is because people feel separate from one another. I'm right, you're wrong, you know, um, whatever. I just heard the other day that the um, wonderful Republican people who have definitely think that they believe that their you know, way is helpful um, want to take away the 30-hour week so that, you know, and taking away that 30-hour week means that people, people who are working minimal-level jobs can't get benefits. You know, so, and the reason is, is, one time I went, I think I told you guys this, I went, my brother one time um, took me up to, the, he was staying in a hotel at the very, very top of a hotel, really, you know, big building, and he, and people, should I say this? Um, if you live a very different life, you know, and you never meet someone who is struggling to pay the rent or to make sure they have uh, electricity in the house, it doesn't. It's just exactly as you say. It doesn't. It doesn't compute. It doesn't even. It's not even a part of their consciousness. It does It's not real. So it's a real problem when, when people live that, that the, the gap now, there's so much discrepancy that they can't even feel so far the other side. It's a real problem for the United States. And Buddhism addresses this with the teaching of dependent co-arising, that there is no separation. We are all one same event. And if we don't understand this, our, um, it's going to get difficult in many ways for people. Um, with factors, or the situations involving skillful means, I find that a lot of them are situations that you're acting on <clears throat> really limited information. and Sometimes you don't really know whether the action you take will have the intended consequence. <laughs> so what's the factor that allows you to know whether the appropriate action you're going to take is actually going to reduce or possibly increase suffering? Yeah, um, that's an incredibly good question. 
my experience is, is that the cleaner and clearer you are about your own, what gets in the way of your clear seeing, the better chance you have to respond appropriately. And you have no idea. You, you, the other person is never a project. You're not like helping the other person. That's not how it is. Something happens, and just with your, with, as, with, with your own clarity, you just see the situation, and like you reach out, if that's what the appropriate response is. The more you see things through your own conditioning, the less you see what actually is there. It's not like a magic power that Buddha has. It's just that this is taken away, so you can actually see what's there. And you don't think that necessarily you're going to ha- It's not a question of help. It's a question of doing something that's toward awakening. But you never, you never think necessarily that what you're doing is the necessarily the right. The, the, the mind doesn't even engage that way. It's just that you see something that seems to be needing something, and you respond, and you do that. It's not like helping. And to you say, as a continuation, once you do that, you stay awake and attentive to the response mm-hmm. on the other side, and, yeah. and that, that also can give you information about the next move, yeah? Maybe? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is like that. So what are, we always talk about today's how, how do we how is that um, what is I guess what is the Dharma? Is it is it the old or is it the new or is it both? It's, it's, how do we take the, the uh, old teachings? Or do what do we say that the Dharma is the old teaching? Yeah, I just want to be clear, you know, there's nothing in Buddhism that says you have to believe any of this. All of these things are just skillful means. They're just pointers. It's not required to believe the Bible as true. You don't have to believe the Lotus Sutra as the truth. Everybody, everybody um, can use whatever it is that is offered in order to help themselves wake up. There's no... There's no um, there's no, nothing in Buddhism that demands a certain kind of faith. Faith develops when you um, have insight. These are all just pointers. So it's not like uh, you, know, you have to believe, not at all. And in some ways, modern teaching is a little bit more um, um, accessible because it's been translated a lot. So sometimes hearing things in a modern way is easier than in the old path. But it's all just pointers. You don't have to. Study the Dharma, uh, you know, the precepts, the, the four noble truths, and the simple path. 
We also might mean other things studying the Dharma. It is contemporary teaching. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. The Dharma means the truth. It's just the truth. So if it comes in the form of some modern somebody, that's still the teaching. And if you read Buddha's words, that's still the teaching. Is that okay? Grasping and aversion. One of the things in the Lotus Sutra that is um, put forward or uh, suggested is devotion. And I don't know if that strikes a note with you at all, but it's not a question of grasping or aversion or anything. You just become devoted to this. And yeah. I think the rain, rain 
Well, good for you, though. You know, good for you that you could do that. Right? Uh, a couple things about fear. You know, fear is always a future thought. Right? So, I mean, if you can set it down and pull yourself back to the present moment, that's always uh, the most, I think, skillful thing to do about fear. It's not really real. But traditionally, um, there are, I think, four main things that fear in Buddhism, death, and public speaking. (laughs) I forgot the other two. Does anybody know? (laughs) I forgot where they are. (laughs) Fear of emptiness. That's another one. Do you want to say anything about fear? More? Um, one, one thing that kind of came up as I was exploring it is um, I was afraid of um, it turning out that I'm extremely responsible or my sense of behavior or whatever. And then there's also the fear that actually I have no control. Like, Excuse me. for parents, you know, they, they don't want their kids to suffer, and you can have anxiety about that possibility. Yeah. But um, I would suggest that control is maybe not the best way to think about how to be with your son. You know, um, I would suggest, if you can, um, just be that presence, be that witness for him. I don't know what the situation is. It's a little hard to talk to, but control, in my experience, is almost never uh, the way to go with kids. Yeah. Sorry, this is going to be difficult. You know, what do you say to people who um, don't recognize other people's difficulties, right? I remember when um, President Bush was president and so on and so forth, it was hard for me to turn on the TV and listen, but I made him my practice, and it was really kind of great. I didn't, I would rather not feel separate than be right. And um, so I really tried to listen to him. And he had a point of view. You know, he has a point of view. He has a background that, that really, you can understand why he is the way he is from his background. And when he became a person, he was a lot more easy, it was a lot easier for me to feel connected with him. 
And I continued to disagree, and if I had met him, I would have you know, tried to explain my point of view. But to me, the most important thing in that situation is not to make enemies, because that's what we see. You know? But would it be true to say that they are hurting themselves when they're making you know, I don't know. I think if a person is conscious enough to notice that they're hurting other people, they do feel hurt. And I think traditionally, in some way, in the, in the teaching about karma, there is a teaching that says if you do something that hurts another being, that there, is, there are karmic consequences. So, yeah. We have one question. We're running out of time. Oh, yes. Huh. myself, maybe the fourth child that stops at the door threshold and then sits down and meditates because of that delicious connection of my pain and suffering. Huh. And that's just being in love with all of that, being human. And you feel like when you step outside, then what? You're aware that you were wrong before, and now you're in this whole big vast thing, and there's all these other things, and then you have your awareness that you were wrong, so maybe you're wrong again. Isn't that interesting? So you're more comfortable with suffering a little bit. I think anxiety. You're such more anxiety comfortable. That's an appropriate fear, because you will lose yourself. That's true. But the self that you lose is the one that's bringing you the anxiety. So when you get comfortable enough to feel, let that anxiety really be there and be comfortable with it, and, and then uh, you might be able to trust yourself to let that go. On the other side, when you turn back around, it's not a question of right or wrong or anything. It's actually, it's actually more comfortable then to be with suffering on the other side of that door. It's not suffering anymore. So I, I, I get really, it's an appropriate fear, because the one you are going to lose. Like I said at the beginning of this talk, it's about giving it up. Giving it, but what you're going to give up is your anxiety person. And sometimes we're more comfortable with the suffering because it's familiar. You know, I know how to be this person, right? But the practice is to be so familiar with it that you can give it up and then walk into the unknown. (laughs) Time? Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.